to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're here, but this is going to be a great show. Why? Because I've got one of the best known. Uh, Wall Street Journal called him the highest paid uh, forecaster in the world, Martin Armstrong. But he's also maybe the most controversial because he certainly doesn't care what the mainstream narrative is. He goes where his models take him and he expresses himself. But he's coming up. So stay with us on that. We'll, we'll get to a lot of stuff with him, by the way, whether it's interest rates or whether it's de-dollarization or gold, all of those kind of hot button subjects. Martin Armstrong coming up. I also got to talk about one aspect of the interest rate market with Aussie Jurek. It's one thing to have a posted rate. It's quite another, quite another to get it. And there's been some changing in the banking uh, industry about lending. You should hear this. It's important. Also, Mike Levy on the big suit against Amazon. Where do we shop? Uh, and I, also, I've got a great goofy award. You'll think it's predictable until I give you the old curveball coming in at the end. So stay with us on that one. As I said, shocking stat, quote of the week. But first... I'm going to start today with one of the silliest, well, some would say worst aspect of public debate. I want to get it off my chest. I've been dying to do this. But I'm going to bring it back to a story in the news this week to illustrate a big problem with how government spends our money and how we let them do it. I've been thinking some time about all the polling we hear regarding support for some new project or a program. You know, questions like, do you support the new transit line or new job creation project, like we just did with the $13 billion Volkswagen subsidy? Well, of course, that's an easy yes for people, because it doesn't mention how much it costs or who's going to pay for it. I mean, who doesn't? How'd you like a new Lamborghini? Well, yes. You know, how much? I've got an example. Nano's found that 54% of Canadians said they support the Volkswagen deal. But do you think that would change if we actually told them how much? It would cost them specifically. Now, that deal's over 10 years, so it would work out to about $47 check every year you have to send to government because we've got 27.5 million tax fires. But as I say, over 10 years. Well, how much support do you think they'd get if we had to put in a check right now, $472 up front for our share? Come on, to really gauge support, you have to include both price and specifics about how much and how we're going to pay for a program or project. Now to the story that I found this week. It's a new report entitled, No Child Effects to Wait, Elects to Wait. No Child Elects to Wait, undertaken by the Children's Healthcare Canada and the Conference Board. In a nutshell, it concludes that when it comes to pediatric spinal surgeries, 40% are not completed within the recommended six-month clinical timeframe, which can result in disease progression and adverse, potentially irreversible effects. Now, come on, none of us want that. The report recommends investing in Canada's perioperative workforce with pediatric expertise, including surgical capacity, while adopting single-entry referral processes. I'm sure recommendations like that, if you add a poll, would receive overwhelming support. But the key is, who's going to pay for it and how much? Because increasing taxes is never a popular idea, especially when you come to like a motherhood issue like children's health care. But I suspect... While supporting the programs, many Canadians would feel, hey, the government already takes too much of our money. And then you got the backing of, well, numerous Auditor General's report. The response might be, why don't you take it from stuff you're already wasting? And that brings me to my point about how we let government spend our tax dollars. The vast majority of time, we're only given two options to pay, borrow more money and or increase taxes. But here's the thing that's not there. Prioritizing government spending is virtually never on the table. 
despite the fact we all do it in our personal lives, lives, but when it comes to a new program or increasing spending, even on important ones like children's health care, it's not even on the agenda to talk about where else we could get the money. And come on, that's a bizarre disconnect from how we run our own personal finances. With rising costs on just about everything, polls consistently find that Canadians are cutting back on discretionary spending. In short, they make choices. The majority say they're prioritizing and cutting back on discretionary stuff, as I said. For government, the choice seems to be predominantly increased borrowing with some tax increases or borrow the money, but never prioritize spending. Gosh, remember this? This is just a couple of months ago. Finance Minister Christia Freeland said she's going to cut $15 billion in spending. Then what? 60 days later or something, she said, well, we're actually not going to cut spending. I mean, are you kidding? I'm not suggesting this is some deep insight into how government spends. But what I am suggesting is that government, despite record debts and deficits, spends our tax dollars very differently than we would our own. And we let it happen. I can't think of the last time government mismanagement of our tax dollars or wasteful spending was an election issue, despite, as I say, numerous examples coming out of the Auditor General's office or the Parliamentary Budget Office. We just let it happen. There's no political price to pay for it. So, no surprise, it keeps happening. In a nutshell, our current financial situation, along with Canada's dismal GDP, per capita growth, uh, lack of capital investment, makes that approach, makes our complacency increasingly unaffordable. Hey, by the way, just one more thing. Uh, This is in response to tons of communications I've had about Are you doing a World Outlook conference again? Well, the answer is yes. It's February 2nd and 3rd, so I hope you save that date. Put it on the calendar, February 2nd and 3rd. Busy confirming all sorts of wonderful speakers. We've had spectacular success over the last several years. But again, I I just think this period we're in is even more important to understand. I've been saying from the get-go, if you don't understand it, you've got a chance of being roadkill. Well, I think we've done a good job protecting you on the show, but also at the World Outlook Conference. So it's February 2nd and 3rd coming up, February 2nd and 3rd, and we'll put tickets on sale November 5th. We'll give you a lot more information on that. We'll put it up on mikesmoneytalks.ca, but yes, we are doing an Outlook Conference February 2nd and 3rd this year. So stay with me. I got Martin Armstrong on deck, always interesting, always controversial, and always uh, uh, absolutely important information. I always welcome the chance to get to talk to, well, I mean, he's on the short list of best-known forecasters, analysts in the world. Of course, I could say, how many have had a movie done after them and another Hollywood movie in the works? Well, Martin Armstrong is with me. I always love to, first of all, Marty, I want, I want to say thanks so much for finding time for us. I know you're extremely busy and not a surprise given all the geopolitical sort of stuff that's going on, you know, impacting the investment market. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for inviting me, Mike. It's always getting interesting these days. Well, and that's what it is. is I'll also say two things very quickly here. Marty was uh, and Armstrong Economics were the first people to use artificial intelligence that I was aware of in market timing, et cetera, and forecasting of, of all sorts of directional change, that kind of thing. And I'm talking 1983, you know, uh, it, of course, has continued to evolve, but along the way, it made these uh, spectacular forecasts, whether we're talking about the, literally the day of the top of the uh, 
Japanese index in 1989. It could have been the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the list goes on on this way, and we've been uh, beneficiaries of that. As I like to say, Marty, you are the controversial, if I was, uh, could be Howard Cassell, the controversial Martin Armstrong, because you say things that your model produces. And it's a very difficult one, especially in the early days, to people understand that you were following a model that you had created yourself that had put in, I mean, tens of thousands of variables at this rate, you know, early days, and that produces uh, the forecasts that you use. Yeah, I I think that um, it, the biggest issue is that uh, as a international hedge fund manager, I was kind of like forced to see the world through everybody else's eyes. And when you start looking at the world and how it's all connected, you can see the capital rushing around. I mean, I was in Geneva in the 80s and where everybody was managing the OPEC money. Then Japan was starting to, to rise. And then all of a sudden the money was going to Japan, but so was the talent. And then when that peaked in 89, they go, oh, gee, what's next? Oh, Southeast Asia. Yeah, that looks good. <laughs> you know. And off they yeah. ran to there. And then that peaks in 94. Then you have the 97 uh, Asian currency crisis because the capital is like, oh, well, gee, the euro is coming in 98. Let's all go over there, you know. And uh, it's this is, you know, the way it has always been. And I can recommend, you know, you can read it for, you know, basically on free online, uh, Herbert Hoover's memoirs and just read chapter from 1931. And he acted. You know, he said that, you know, this is when all the governments were defaulting and stuff. And he said capital acted like a loose cannon on the deck of a ship in the middle of a hurricane. He said it was shooting off in every which direction so fast they couldn't figure out what, what was going on. And that's still the way capital moves. When Greece got in trouble in 2010 and everybody made a lot of money in the dealing rooms, they go, oh, okay, fine. Who's next? Oh, Spain. Yeah, let's go over there. You know, and then they move from one to the next. This is the way money really moves internationally. Well, you know, a real key is how important that is in the investment side of things is uh, Armstrong Economics has been bullish the U.S. dollar. I, I, I can't even remember how long, but your point was always because when we have problems in the world, money's going to flow into the U.S. And I know the weakness of the U.S. dollar going back just so recently, about six months ago, you were still writing and saying, no, 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 no. You know, unless you're telling me there's going to be no geopolitical tensions or, or conflicts, the U.S. dollar isn't done yet. You know, I know you have a date. I'll talk about that in a minute. And you'll talk about it because you have an upcoming conference called the Road to 2032, where you're going to delineate literally a roadmap on uh, all of these investment themes uh, and the U.S. dollar, of course, being one of the prominent ones. So I know you do have a target for when it will peak out. But my point back to what you were saying is you said, hey, you just have to follow where the money flows. European, uh, you know, Ukraine conflict, uncertainty around that. Oh, guess what? The euro's going down. And the U.S. dollar is going up, which, of course, has proven to be the case. But it's just sort of to highlight the importance of what you're saying about following how capital moves. And, and your work is the pioneer, Armstrong Economics, is the pioneer for that kind of work. Uh, let me come to something else about your modeling. Um, and I found it greatly beneficial. Uh, first of all, you've, let's, I, I'll, I'll grab three major trends. 
that now look obvious, not at the time when you say it, but you said, hey, be careful. We're talking about the around 2015, actually October 1st, 2015. I think you said the model told you to say, hey, we're going to begin a sovereign debt crisis now. I would hope that's somewhat obvious to people at this point. But the scary part was it was coinciding broadly with the trend of the cycle of war picking up, the civil unrest picking up. And that's a global concept. You know, I mean, uh, you, as you say, you look at globally. So I'm looking at all three of those and just wondering for an update, especially on the sovereign debt crisis. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me, but an update from you. Well, this is actually... Uh, you know, the, the backdrop to the whole central bank digital currency issue. Uh, and uh, from their perspective, we are all just the great unwashed. You know, they wouldn't have a problem if we all paid our taxes and, you know, and walked in, in, in a straight line and, and bowed whenever they told us to. Um, and this is really the, the, the primary issue. I mean, I've been arguing with governments for 40 years is that this is not going to be sustainable. And their excuse has been, oh, yeah, but we're the government. And, and I said, that's very nice, but you have to sell your debt at some point. And what happens when they stop buying? And, and they think like that mm-hmm. would never happen. And, I mean, just look at what's going on. You, you have these uh, what we call neocons who are, you know, hell bent on creating World War III. Uh, I mean, they targeted Ukraine. I mean, this has all been been uh, orchestrated. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, to to my shock, you had Merkel actually come out, and there was a mince agreement where the Donbass was supposed to get a right to vote, and then she actually came out and said, "Well, we never really intended that. That was just to, to allow Ukraine to, to build up its army." I mean. Why would anybody negotiate now with the West if this is their attitude? I mean, it's it just, I, I've never seen a head of state ever do something like that in my life. Uh, and so, I mean, now you have them bashing, you know, China over Taiwan. Well, it just so happens that China is, the, you know, was the largest holder of U.S. debt. I think now it's number two. Um, they've been selling billions, tens of billions of dollars per month. I mean, you don't, you know, you can't go to them and say, gee, would you buy another hundred billion uh, worth of our debt so we can buy some missiles to shoot you? I mean, uh, where's the logic here? I mean, nobody seems to even understand what they're saying. I mean, China is... Well, when you look at... It's just not going to buy U.S. debt anymore. Um, That's part of the whole dollar de-dollarization of scheme that's going around that people don't understand either but um but let me let me interrupt just for a sec because we're seeing again examples of what you're saying uh you know and you wrote about it we talked about it some would say ad nauseum on money talks but september 16 2019 the overnight repo market there were no there were no lenders all of a sudden you know nobody was buying the debt so presto, you had the Federal Reserve step in. Interest rates for the overnight market went up 500% at one point. But we've seen it subsequent to that. Look at Japan. Look at Great Britain. I think your message that had been long uh, in writing, uh, copywritten in writing, was, hey, the side you got to worry about is you're going to get no buyers at one point. I would think we're pretty close to that right now. Or they're going to have to raise interest rates to entice the buyers. Well, the, 
even if they don't, you know, look at raising the rates. I mean, the market will do it by itself anyhow. I mean, the bonds are starting to crash again. Uh, and, and that's, you know, people are beginning to realize that the Fed is, um, it has come out and it has clearly said um, that, fine, it's, it's concerned about inflation, uh, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, it says, and international considerations. And people yeah. watching the oh CPI and unemployment, that's very nice. The Fed's not really looking at that. The Fed knows the number one cause of inf- inflation is always war. Uh, it was Vietnam that broke Bretton Woods. You know, it's this is it. I mean, World War One, World War Two destroyed Europe. The U.S. was bankrupt in 1896. It's when J.P. Morgan had to lend $100 million in, in gold to the U.S. Treasury to bail it out. Britain was the number one financial capital of the world. And then at the end of World War II, it all moved to the U.S. So war has been a very, very significant factor um, on everything. Let me come. Let me come to a couple of things around that. One is, of course, the big question on individuals' mind is, and well, the market's mind. You see it debated every day. Is well, have interest rates topped out here? Are they about to drop? I mean, you know, yeah. Okay, stop laughing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But they, you know, that we've seen, uh, you know, lots of forecasts about this. None of them have come to fruition at this point. And so I'm just wondering within that context, if the Federal Reserve needs and other central banks, we're just talking U.S. for a second, uh, needs to raise so much money, needs to, you know, how do they do it without raising rates? How, do, how does that allow rates to actually go down uh, if you have that level of need to, to sort of entice borrower or sorry, lenders? Pardon me. Well, I mean, that's the problem. It's it's the marketplace sets the long term rates. It's not the central banks. The central banks can can set the, the short-term rate. That's very nice. But even that uh, is out of their control. It, it really comes down to the market. Uh, as you were saying, with the repo crisis, um, you had Merkel standing up saying that they weren't going to bail out Greece. So therefore, she had to say, well, we're not going to bail out Deutsche Bank. Then all of a sudden, U.S. banks said, well, we're not going to lend anything to Deutsche Bank overnight if you're not going to bail it out. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like the politicians do have zero understanding of how the world economy even works. Uh, and and it, they're their own worst enemy. I mean, it, this is crazy. Um, you take the whole inflation thing and everything else. And then you then you have um, the UAW, you know, basically going on strike. Why? You're causing inflation. Everything has an impact, uh, and they just look at everything in, in isolation. They never look at how things are actually connected. It would seem to me also the further we go down this path, the more desperate everything becomes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like an individual. If you owe a million dollars, it's probably pressure. You owe 100 million. You've got to, you know what I mean? It's, it's intensified every mistake, everything. And that's what I'm sort of seeing is the mistakes become intensified. The consequences become more severe. And so let me just sum up that last part. Um, bottom line is you're not recommending people buy government bonds. Oh, of any level of government. I know. Uh, stay away from yeah. all of them. Federal, state, local, um, 
we're, we're in a serious debt crisis here. This is what the central bank digital currency is about. They think that eliminating paper money, uh, they can destroy the underground economy. And they, this is their, their view, all right, that if they eliminate the paper money and go to forced digital currency, they will collect 35% more in taxes. This is the way they look at it. I mean, you, yeah. you and your wife want to go out to dinner, and so you hire the 16-year-old girl next door to watch the kids. Uh, well, how did how did you pay her? Did she pay her taxes? Mm-hmm. You gave her a $20 bill? <laughs> what? You know, it, it's this is the way they look at it. We, You know, honestly, I've been in meetings, and I've actually heard some of these people say it's all their money. They just decide what we're allowed to keep. Absolutely. Let me come back to the bonds. Uh, you know, the other thing your model always measures is, is, you know, if it hits this point, X will happen. Well, I know that you've been writing about uh, if interest rates, you know, uh, you know, they're not going to collapse. They're not going to drop unless uh, the Federal Reserve gets interest rates down to 4.75% at the end of the year. And again, uh, m- monthly, weekly, yearly rates are very important. Yearly, the most important. So if we can get that interest rate down to 475 then maybe we can drop some. But if we don't, you've got some numbers that are pretty scary if they go to the upside. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're just basically going above the five and a half level for, the, for year-end closing. You're looking at minimum targets of about 8%. Um, so that's the warning. The people just have to know the interest rate risk is out there and it's the dynamic is, again, how much they need to borrow uh, but as, as you know, as I say, they've been Federal Reserve, the central banks have been stepping up because there wasn't anybody willing to lend at certain rates, you know, and that's what pushed the rates up. So I just think it's an important part of the conversation. And uh, I don't want to skip around too much, but I'm worried about our time. So I'm going to come to something else you were writing about that I thought was fascinating because a lot of people will say, OK, well, are they going to bail it out by just printing up more money? Whatever the problem is, you know, UK pensions. Oh, let me print more money. Uh, pandemic print more money. Oh, energy crisis in Europe will print more money. And that's got people thinking gold must have gone up, must go up. Well, it hasn't. Let's be straight. And you've been writing a really interesting piece on what really fiat currency is, that it's just too casually thrown around as a cause and effect. The, uh, the, that's the cause and the effect will be rising gold prices, which we haven't seen. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, most of that has been uh, the same scenarios put out since 1971, you know, um, uh-huh. and it, it's just not true. But when you're going to see gold take off and it has made, you know, three major thrusts at, at this 2000 level, the fourth time it will go through. But what is it? All right. Uh, gold had bottomed in 1976 at 100. It finally rose to 400 in December 79. It went from 400 to 875 in the last six weeks when Russia invaded Afghanistan. Okay, it's confidence. It's when you suddenly begin to wonder, you know, is the government going to survive? Who's going to survive out of this? That's when this comes. The the average person doesn't look at, oh, gee, CPI is up 2% this month, so I better buy some Mm -hmm. gold. That's just not the issue. Uh, gold has never been um, 
some sort of lock nest, you know, all the way lockstep to uh, inflation. It's just not true. Uh, gold went down for 19 years after 1980, and the national debt, you know, went straight up for 19 years. Um, there's more to it than that. And so we come back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, it's just a question of confidence. And what all of this is doing is it, it's spreading the um, lack of confidence in government. I mean, you got gold bugs. They will always buy gold no matter what. All right. We're talking about having to expand that to other people. And when that and that is what's necessary to make that fourth uh, thrust up. And I believe a lot of it's going to be connected to the central bank digital currencies. And when they see this is basically what is really on the agenda uh, is to eliminate all physical money and. Uh, so they can get a hundred percent of whatever they believe they they think they're entitled to in taxes. And, and we're certainly seeing the evolution. Uh, I remember when you first brought that up. Uh, gosh, I'm off the top of my head, 2018. You were starting to talk about that, and then you. I remember chronicling for us here actually on the World Outlook Conference, both in 2019, that already seven central banks outside of China, China was already well underway and wasn't hiding it. You know, had made progress. I think. Uh, the progress on that is obvious now. You know, I mean, if anybody's looking, they can see that that's, that's where we're going and they're just going to create a rationale for that, you know, that's on the, the way. But, uh, the, the, the whole yeah. COVID thing is, if you look closely, that's when they used it to start. Oh, cash is dirty. Talking to, to stores not to accept cash. Um, they, you know, even in Britain, they got, you know, uh, a lot of stores to agree not to accept cash anymore. Uh, you know, this is, they fear the underground economy. And this is what this is all about. I mean, there is a clip on my site from Christine Lagarde saying, you know, yes, it's the gray market and there will be controls. Um, and I mean, you had Bank of England actually put out the preposterous thing, oh, gee, you know, a mother should be able to control uh, the money she gives her child to make sure he can't buy a chocolate bar for lunch. Well, if your mother can do that, what can they do? Let me come back to the oil, because I know Socrates predicted if you had a year-end close, I think it's above 99, 99.50, then that opens the gate for another new high, you know, a significant new high. And I'm just thinking that'll, that'll certainly erode confidence in government because people don't like it when stuff affects, you know, uh, again, I know you'll be talking at, at the conference, November 17th and 18th and 19th, you're going to be talking about uh, food prices, but wheat, you know, uh, looks like it forms a low this year, all of those things going up at the same time. I, I think if that's, if you want to erode confidence, we'll just attack somebody's food prices, energy prices and, and shelter. But uh, we seem to be well on our way on all of those things. Yeah, I mean, all of this this craziness with the uh, um, migrations into everywhere. I mean, Europe, oh. America, Canada, you're getting in, infiltrated by it. Um, and all that just adds to the civil unrest and, and prices rising. Um, I mean, you have these people coming in and... Um, I will tell you, I had the mandate from Hong Kong 
and I met with, they were trying to get me to, they knew I knew the government of Australia. And I met with the former prime minister, Paul Keating. And um, I had a blank check I, to buy an island off, the, off the, the coast of Australia. Everything I tried to do um, to buy land, the answer was no, no, no. And I finally said to him, I said, is this racist? I mean, because nothing made any sense. And he actually said to me, he says, no, if we allowed those people to come in, they would vote conservative. And Keating was Ooh. labor. Uh, before we finish, uh, let me just quickly come back to the market, because you've got a lot of people suggesting, you know, I, I, for lack of a better term, a crash, you know, but a severe downturn. Let's leave it at that. And of course, that hasn't manifested at this point. Uh, are you seeing more volatility uh, are you worried about, uh, you know, I, I think you said if it closes be below 33,600, that's an alarm bell for you. But, uh, you know, but b basically trading in a wide range. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that um, you have all these people, you know, like they just pull out the charts from 1929. Oh, it's going to be this big mm -hmm. crash. All right. <clears throat> what they failed to, to point out is that the United States government had a balanced budget. All the sovereign nations of Europe defaulted. Britain went into a moratorium. So the capital was coming here. All right. So it was pushing up the dollar. It wasn't going down. Mm -hmm. The dollar went to record highs. Now, if we have a problem this time, it's not in the private sector. It's in the government sector. You really want to sell all your stocks and go buy government bonds? Yeah. I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the opposite this time. So and I don't think you're going to see the stock market down crashing 90 percent or what some of these people are saying. It's quite absurd. Um, capital's got to go someplace. And when the stock market goes down, it's a flight to quality and they buy bonds. They're not not going to happen this time. It's so fascinating as, as we started right off the top saying there's so many different variables and events hitting, but it's, it's not a surprise just so people know that, you know, your model's been calling for the 2030-32 period as being, you know, pivotal. Well, we're getting there and we're intensifying as we get there, but that's why your conference coming up November 17, 18, and 19 in Orlando called The Road to 2032 is going to give a roadmap rather a roadmap to all of these kinds of things because they're interrelated. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be dynamite. And I think uh, it's the most important conference you've put on because we're now getting to the pivot point. We're now getting to, we're seeing it all around, whether it's a spike in some commodity prices, a, a sharp drop, the volatility, the interest rate markets, all of that is sort of producing this period and you got to be on the right side of it. So Marty, I want to just say thank you. And I want to invite people, by the way, to go to armstrongeconomics.com. You've got a blog there, absolutely free. And the other thing you've done is you can be part of the private blog and it's unbelievably inexpensive. You've made it available to everyone to see what Socrates is saying next. And I want to remind people of that. But I also want to just extend my personal thanks, Marty, for you taking the time here. Well, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Uh, I've been doing Vancouver for, I don't know, 30 years yep. or so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I looked a lot better then, by the way. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you in Orlando. Thanks, Marty. Uh, nice to see you. Thank you very much. Time now for the quote of the week, courtesy of Steve Patterson. He's author of Square One, The Foundation of Knowledge. He's also the host of Patterson in Pursuit. 
who sums up a key aspect of today's public debate in quotes. All fields of thought are under constant threat of being captured by superficial consensus by those who are seeking to be part of an authoritative group. These people tend to have superior social manipulative skills and are better at communicating with the general public and are willing to attack any critic as if their lives depended on it for understandable reasons, since the benefits of social prestige are indeed on the line when sacred assumptions are being challenged. The longer the orthodoxy exists, the higher the cost of revision, potentially costing an entire class their relative social position. If, for example, the science of global warming is revealed to be corrupt, the social hierarchy will be upended and the status of many intellectuals will be permanently damaged. Well, I think there's a heck of a lot to what he's saying there, that people take positions and in those positions they uh, achieve virtue, they see, achieve social status, etc. So to let go of that, even if the facts now refute it, comes at a huge personal cost. I mean, one of the big stories, maybe the biggest story in our own personal financial lives is the cost of things. So no wonder we all look around and see if we can get the best price. And one of the places, well, the most popular place to stop is on Amazon. And yet, lo and behold, on Wednesday, we find the Federal Trade Commission coming out, joined by 17 states, saying, you know what? Amazon's got practices out there that prevent me from getting the best deal. i got to bring in Mike Levy with me. Mike's been in retail all of his adult life. Mike, what is the FTC saying? Well, they're alleging that Amazon uses a price surveillance team to crawl the Internet to ensure vendors are not selling items at lower prices elsewhere. Secondly, they're saying uh, that uh, Amazon wanted to eliminate a popular program that allows sellers to ship Prime. Uh, The Prime items are the ones that... Amazon Prime members get delivered for free through other companies. It says with no competitors to threaten it, Amazon has hammered its vendors with fees. And also Amazon is using a pay-to-play scheme for placing its ads that customers don't like. Well, the fact is, Mike, when you read this and then read it in detail, uh, you can you, you, you can really answer to every one of those and Really, the Amazon customer is the one that's benefiting from all this. Well, let me let me come back to what you said there, that Amazon uses a price surveillance team. It goes over the Internet to make sure that the vendors on the Amazon site aren't selling their items at lower prices elsewhere. That's what concerns me. Well, you know what, Mike? I was in the retail business for so many years, and that's what every department store did. They sent out ghost shoppers. So when I was with Woodward's, they were shopping Eaton's, they were shopping The Bay, they were shopping Simpson Sears to make sure that their prices were competitive and the lowest. What's wrong with that? Yeah, that's what jumped out at me. I mean, you know, stores compete on, there's a certain segment of stores that compete on price, and we're well aware of them. I mean, Walmart's created a giant by doing that. We used to have Zellers in the marketplace. Uh, You know, that list is a long one. Are they actually suggesting, though, that customers no longer shop and compare? No, I mean, Mike, they are, but yes, they do. Shoppers, you can see them in the retail stores going in, looking at merchandise. They've got their cell phone out in front of them. And what are they doing? They're comparing prices. What's Amazon doing? They're comparing prices and ergo giving you the benefit. Don't think that shoppers are stupid. Shoppers aren't stupid. They're savvy. And we're seeing that more and more today. 
Yeah, I remember your point about people go into a store and immediately they go on their phone to check prices elsewhere, I think is one that at least I've seen that in so many instances. And I know that, uh, you know, different surveys have shown that's the majority of shoppers doing that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm still surprised where the Federal Trade Commission is coming from on that, because, again, there's nothing I see that Amazon is doing that prevents me from doing that. And that would be the key to make sure you're getting whatever quality, and whatever price you're looking for. And that's what the FTC is worried about. But in fact, shoppers are doing that themselves. In 218, which was the last survey, 59% of shoppers use smartphones in stores to compare prices or search for deal. Now, look, Amazon has about 38% of the U.S. e-commerce market, but it only accounts for 6% of all retail sales. Mike, that's not a monopoly. Yeah, that's a surprising number. I, I don't know what I would have thought, but 6% of overall retail uh, makes sense to me. But yeah, that's a great example of, you know, Amazon can control its little side of the marketplace, but that still isn't there in controlling the marketplace. I don't know where this one's going, Mike. I don't know, do you, you know, is it politically motivated or what? But yeah, I think this is an easy one to drive a truck through on some of their complaints. Uh, Mike, I've got to say, politically motivated might just be the handle that we have to put on this. Um, Retailers are not forced to sell on Amazon. Yeah. They sell on Amazon because that gives them the best distribution on their goods, and they're not selling it at a loss. There may be some things that might be a little marginal on what Amazon's doing, but it certainly doesn't mean they should be shut down or they should be ruled or overruled by the Federal Trade Commission. This might be political. Well, I've got my T-shirt on, shop and compare. That's my advice to everyone. Mike, go out and have a terrific week. And you have a good weekend, Mike. I love good timing, and this is an example of that because I've got Andrew Rulin on with me, Integrated Wealth Management. Uh, Andrew, first of all, thanks for taking the time here. But I know that you over the years have certainly followed the work of Martin Armstrong, so it's kind of interesting to hear those themes that you're well aware of. Uh, but what jumps out at you, and I'm thinking specifically about how to protect, you know, clients. You're getting asked these questions. It's the environment that you're dealing with. How do you protect your clients? Well, it's interesting because there's always an emphasis on, on growth, except when things are doing really poorly. And the way that the arithmetic of loss works, it's much more important to protect against the major downturns. Yes. So a big focus that we've always had with paying attention to, to Marty's work and to everything that you've been saying and other Money Talks guests like Bob Hoy and Joseph Schachter and Victor, frankly, although he's more short-term, the reality is that we're focused mostly on minimizing downside. And when you minimize downside, you keep a lot of powder dry. You keep purchasing power for when big opportunities arise. And so that's a lot of what we do, trying to implement big picture independent thinking and basically to avoid being the bug and prefer to be the windshield, even though the windshield gets pretty dirty. Well, and one of the areas of the market, where, you know, you can talk stocks, obviously commodities, uh, gold, oil, but also the bond market. I mean, people in the bond market have been getting killed. I mean, that's something that, you know, when they said, and I know this isn't your approach, but I think this may uh, be why it's not your approach, which is you can't just lay stuff away and not pretend the market's ongoing. You know, with the losses that we've seen over three years in the bond market uh, that way. So it, it requires active management. Very definitely. We think that the buy and hold approach or set it and forget it is, <laughs> is basically a recipe for a disaster 
because you're just not adapting to some of the big picture changes that we're actually going to talk about uh, in our upcoming webinar. The reality is that two years ago, a uh, little, little over two years ago, we were watching exactly what was happening, listening to what Marty was talking about, and our portfolio managers got real short-term corporate on the bond side and avoided, frankly, a disaster on even uh, in that portion of the client's portfolio, which varies depending on client. But we avoided those big disasters, and we're happy we did that. What percentage right now are you looking at? And I know this is a broad question because you have to individualize every portfolio you look at, but just sort of broad speaking, I mean, 5.5% in a GIC over one or two years is looking pretty sweet. You know, I guess maybe I'm living in the past because I'm comparing it to also what we were enduring for several years. But I mean, that's sort of a guaranteed 5.5%. So what degree are you taking advantage of that in the individual portfolios? Again, I know that's broad based. The way that we're looking at it is that GICs are, are something which can be good for a very specific short-term uh, type of saving goal where it's like, okay, well, I have a, a specific purchase that I'm going to make. And so I want to lock up the money. I don't want any volatility, et cetera. I don't need to make big money. I just don't want to experience any loss. So we don't typically manage that part of a client's overall investment portfolio. We're more the long-term money. So the approach that we've been taking is to take advantage of great yields in some preferred shares, in some high-quality corporates, uh, even some uh, some LRCNs, uh, which are it's a, an interesting <laughs> interesting rabbit hole not to go down, but that's an interesting opportunity. But also some short-term money market accounts, and the reason we prefer that approach to the GIC is that we have the current yield that you'd get from a GIC, but we retain the nimbleness of being able to take advantage of going back into other areas where there's better long-term growth potential. So we get both the safety in the short term uh, along with and the yield, but we retain the ability to be nimble and take advantage of opportunities as they arise elsewhere. Uh, what level of positioning did you have in oil? I mean, you're joining me today from Calgary, obviously well aware, you know, what, what was it, $95 uh, West Texas Intermediate this week? You know, that's the price we all trade is uh, in, in North America, West Texas. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, $95 and that huge move in oil, not fully reflected in the stocks, but it's been a nice period over three months for stocks, too. That has been one of the biggest positions we've had in what we call our core and explorer strategy, which actually came about uh, directly as a result of your 2021 World Outlook Financial Conference. Mm -hmm. We actually had, uh, we heard, you know, the, the theme from you and Victor and others that, you know, for the Build Back Better opportunity or that, that branding of this, this new trend that, that the Biden administration was pushing, that it would take stuff. And so we, in six weeks, we had our first trade on and that's done very well. Uh, I have this is obviously Friday we're recording. As of yesterday's close, we're up 2.8 months to date and just over 12 for, for the year to date and right around 13 since inception. So we've had a big position there. Uh, and it's likely, as Joseph said a couple of weeks ago on your show, likely that we're going to have a little bit of a pullback. We did get a pullback shortly after he mentioned that and we've rebounded. Looks like we're trying to test a new high. But a pause would definitely refresh at this stage. 
but yes, we've been significantly invested in uh, in oil and gas stocks. I, I guess the bottom line is, and I want to just mention this, by the way, that on Tuesday, uh, and it will be 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, you're doing a webinar. That's October 3rd. Mm-hmm. October 3rd. I can't believe it's October already, but mm-hmm. October 3rd. And and by the way, you can just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca to register. Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot of questions. One is about, and you, you've, you're sort of alluding to that there, about interest rates, et cetera. But the other one is just how do you protect some, someone's money from sort of this constant decline in purchasing power? And, and again, I'll remind people that, yeah, you can drop inflation to 4%. That's a measure of how fast prices are still growing. And, you know, so that's that's the question I'm still getting a lot of. Two things. One is to invest in the things that actually benefit from uh, from the inflationary cycle. And the commodity side of things has certainly been that. Um, also, track short-term interest rates uh, in mm-hmm. corporate bonds and money market ETFs because those, uh, those rise, uh, their yields rise quickly with inflation. A little bit on the alternative side, have to be careful because uh, real estate also gets repriced a little bit lower with the headwind of rising interest rates. But ultimately, as uh, rent, rental income increases, and we're mostly on the multifamily residential side with real estate, not big corporate uh, real estate, mm-hmm. and certainly not big office, though those are looking a little bit more attractive now. But the, the reality also is that on the stock side of things, one of the things that, that people lose sight of is that over the long term, dividend grower stocks provide the highest quintile, the, the highest 20% of long-term return, including reinvested dividends, and the lowest 20% of volatility. But in the short term, as interest rates rise, those dividend yields don't rise as quickly. But over time, the great companies that are, are dominant in, in their space and in essential areas, they do keep pace with inflation. So one of the correlations that, that is um, felt to be true all the time is that interest rates up equal stocks uh, down all the time. Well, in the short term, that's true. But stocks are not down long term from inflation. Companies... Uh, benefit from long-term inflation. Not all companies in the short term, but long-term. I mean, it's quite an environment for individuals. And I mean, people who don't see themselves as investors felt it on the interest rate front, though, if they have a mortgage coming due. As an example, you know, all there's so many different areas. They paid more at the gas pump. You know, obviously mm-hmm. food, which we've been focusing on for a few years here on Money Talks. All of that stuff is a very difficult environment for uh, you know, individuals. And I guess, I mean, obviously that's why you're doing this, uh, the webinar. So tell me, just mm-hmm. give me a quick one minute on what you're going to do with the webinar on Tuesday. Well, the title of it is, are you ready for the changing world order? And that's looking at some of the big picture stuff that Marty talks about, uh, the formation of the BRICS and uh, the expansion of some of the alliances outside of the Western world that are, are changing things, but also, frankly, to, to look at some opportunities that are created by those sure. changes. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, ESG, unmasking ESG investing. And I had to chuckle because we wrote that last week and then i saw earlier this week on five minutes with mike that you were saying are we perhaps at the at the uh the summit of esg investing and of course we follow doomberg and places like that so you know we're we're wise to to those sorts of things but again they create opportunities the fact is though is that we've got some changes that have been happening in the world that have been shifting longer term very slowly like tectonic plates but eventually tectonic plates meet each other 
and they keep pushing on each other, and then things change suddenly after they've been moving slowly for a very long time. And of course, you're out there uh, on the on the west coast on the island, I think now, but you're on the west side of the last time that we had two major tectonic plates uh, meet in North America, <laughs> and I'm on the east side of them, right? So those things happen slowly and then quickly. Yep, that's a theme that we've had on Money Talks, you know, uh, for a long time. And it, it informs how I approach things. That's why I take a core position and then decide to add. Because as Jim Dines, the legend himself, said, it's so mm-hmm. tough to jump into a moving train, you know, once it's starting to go. I, so I prefer to have base positions. But that, that sounds like a great uh, webinar for people because you're addressing some of the questions we get, many of the questions we get. And uh, so, Andrew, uh, that'll be on uh, Tuesday, October 3rd. As I say, 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Simple. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. you got to register. mikesmoneytalks.ca to register. And it's free, but you got to register to get your access into the webinar. Andrew, I know it'll be good. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Mike. Have a great weekend. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And, you know, and this is one of those ones when I heard about it and read about it, it actually stopped me in my tracks. Now, I think we're well aware that the U.S. border crisis is a very hot topic in the U.S. Uh, Well, I guess it started with President Donald Trump promising to put up a wall along the Mexican border. But what's now caught the public's attention is that the majority of those crossing the border are military-aged men who arrive without wives and children, something in the neighborhood of 70% this year, 7.7 million since January, 70% unaccompanied by families. Now, the issue has intensified, of course. Uh, Remember, going back a couple of months, we were talking about the border states where Arizona, Texas, busing some of these migrants, new people across the border, into so-called sanctuary cities like San Francisco and New York. Well, here we go, because that brings me to the shocking stat about the high cost of absorbing the new migrants for New York. Colin Rugg is the co-owner of Trending politics, and he notes that New York City's centipede in spending is $1 billion for these people on just the hotels over the next three years. That's what they're anticipating. New York Mayor Eric Adams estimates the total cost of the migrant crisis is going to be, and this is what just blew me away, $12 billion over the next three years. This is according to the mayor with more than 57,300 individuals currently in our care on an average night. It amounts to $9.8 million a day, $300 million a month, and a shocking $3.6 billion a year. As you can imagine, this is a hot topic, even in a Democrat-dominated city like New York. You know, interesting talking to Martin Armstrong. He was the first that brought this to my attention and making this a distinction. While he thought that rates were going up, he said that's still not the whole story because no one has to lend to you. They can post any rate they want. It doesn't mean they have to lend to you. And that's a fear that Ozzy and I have been chatting about for a while. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now, ozbuzz.ca. And you know what, Oz? We're starting to see this. Uh, you know, I'm hearing anecdotally at this point, but for many people who said, Hey, I didn't qualify for the mortgage. I couldn't get the mortgage. They didn't want to lend me the home equity line of credit. That seems to be starting to gain momentum. So it doesn't matter what the rates are if you can't get the loan. Well, that is extremely important. And But people also have to realize that banks have their own problem. They just went through an absolute crazy month where 
The 10-year Treasury yield uh, this week went over 4.6% in the States, which wasn't uh, never seen for 15 years. Now, these higher rates means that the mortgage rate that's tied to the bond rate, which mm-hmm. is the fixed rate, also goes up. So if the bank is, is, is doing you a favor by giving you a 6% mortgage and then the bond rate goes up if they borrow the money, they actually can lose money. It's almost like one of the lenders called the game of Russian roulette. So some of the lenders, we hear that a major lender has stopped giving pre-approval loans. Now, that's a biggie, right? But they just don't know what the banks are going to do, right? So they want to be safe, and so we, we just don't do that spiel. Or another lender we hear went from A clients to B lending. B meaning they're not going to charge much higher interest rates. It's a higher risk for the bank, but at least they won't have the mortgage risk. So, so all of these things happen because of this craziness in, in money generally. Well, what a great point you're making, though. I mean, that people hardly ever sit down and say, let me think it's a tough time for banks. That's not what comes to people's <laughs> mind. But your point's well taken. You know, I mean, if they've lent money out at 5%, but the cost of money continues to rise, that's not a very attractive mortgage, you know, uh, when they have to, they take in loans and somehow it gets above that five. I mean, you can go out right now, I think, to any major Canadian bank and you can put money in a deposit and, and book it for a year at 5.5 or something like that. So your point's well taken. This latest rise in sort of mid and long term rates, you know, makes those previous loans, I think, would look unattractive, you know, and, and, that whole thing about reluctant to lend is a key point that people shouldn't assume, even in their analysis, even looking at it, oh, they'll always lend to me at that rate. No, they won't. And what the CIBC thinks it's going to, the rates are still going up. Well, that's the crazy thing. Benjamin Tall made a presentation to UDI this week and said, now this is against the general consensus. Generally, the econom- economists say that Canada on October 25th is not going to raise rates. Now, Benjamin Tall doesn't agree with the Bank of Canada. He thinks they're wrong, totally wrong, but he thinks they will raise rates. And uh, of course, so the, what we are hearing is the government says, well, we have to see whether inflation goes up or employment numbers go down. And it's really vital to understand that that's what they're looking at. So they don't really care, and you've said this forever, that they literally try and drive us into a recession. Then they're happy because they're on the way to a better inflation rate, they feel. And that's the key debate right now just across the economic sphere is have the higher rates guaranteed a recession coming forward that is still up for debate a slowdown maybe but a recession uh, and others are saying they're not they're not stopping this until they break something in the system there's all of that but here's the point Ozzy that many don't seem to understand the government's uh, deficit and debt financing requires people to lend them the money this is why they don't want inflationary fear to sort of be entrenched because you'll want a higher return. If I'm going to lock up my money for a year or two years with inflation at five and a half or something like that, I need to get a higher rate of return. That's what they're looking at on that side too. So yeah, I, your point's just very well taken. The long-term rates are rising or are being supported by the fact that government needs money so desperately that they may have to keep rates up to attract lenders. And, and that's the other side. As I say, it's a two-sided sort of debate at this point. But yeah, the implications for us is maybe those rates, especially on that longer end, even the five-year, but the 10 for sure is showing us signs that the rates are going up despite the slowing economy in some areas. Well, and that's the key. And sometimes people think, oh, those bad banks, I mean, the Bank of Canada gives them this. They have to understand that the Bank of Canada overnight rate is the rate that the bank fixes its prime rate, and that is what is to the variable rate. And that won't change till October 25th. That's kind of 
given, but the fixed rate is tied to the bond rates, and the bond rates are very much uh, in flux right now. So if you want to have a long-term mortgage, as a as a rental buyer, like a rental condo buyer, you're now looking at 7.8% and more. Yeah, your point's so well taken, not often mentioned enough or understood uh, with that, and that's why we keep an eye on those rates because it has a direct impact. Ozzy, I appreciate that. Go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And, and remember, I was looking at Benjamin Franklin, and he had this wisdom of the ages. He said, beer is constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. <laughs> can, wait, about six names came to mind immediately. I'm going to get in trouble. Ozzy, ozbuzz.ca. Have a great week. Thank you. Victor Dare joins me now live from the trading desk. You know, Vic, this is one of those subjects that's been on my mind and has been on Money Talk's mind for over three years, the warning about what happens if there's a sovereign debt crisis. And we've seen, you know, flare-ups of this. But really the essence is when you find people who bought a lot of bonds, and can you think about that in Japan, think about that in Europe where they have low coupon, now the rates have gone way up, the bond is not worth as much. Those are huge losses. And, uh, you know, I posted something this week on Money Talk's tweets uh, that basically said, I think the losses are somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.57 trillion. And I get the impression that people don't get the significance of that. And then I watched the bond trading again this week, which of course you do on a daily basis. And you go, man, another you know relatively new, new high means more bond losses. Hey, well, actually I've been watching the bond market about 24 hours a day this week, Mike. It's, it's, it has been a, a stressful period for the bond market. We've got 16-year highs in yields uh, in Canada and in the United States. European bonds are getting clobbered as well. Of course, Japanese bonds, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the fix is in over there. But, you know, we, for instance, one of the popular ways of looking at the bonds is an ETF called the TLT. The value of that thing is down by half from where it was in the summer of 2020 when we had the real low interest rates. So, We've just seen a surge lately to higher yields, uh, you know, everywhere in, in the, call it the G7 world, ex-Japan. And, and it's straightforward. I mean, who the heck wants to buy a bond that's yielding, you know, a pick a number, one and a quarter percent over a long period of time? Who wants to buy that when I can turn around? And I know it's a shorter term. I didn't look at the 30 years uh, before we started talking, but let's just take the shorter term ones are at 5%. You can, you can run out and get five right now. Well, people aren't going to buy that one and a quarter percent bond without it being severely discounted. And that's what you're talking about when you look at sort of the average fall is 50 percent. And of course, it's also individuals because this is sort of blowing apart, you know, portfolio management because wasn't weren't we supposed to have a 60, 40 portfolio? Man, that bond side of that portfolio has not worked out. Yeah, we've gone through periods of time, say over the last 50 years, where you'll have stocks and bonds are correlated and other periods of time where they're not. Ideally, people would like to see them not correlated so that they kind of balance one another out. But the last three years here in particular, as bond prices have fallen, and last year was a, was a tough one because stock prices were also down, but people with that classic 60-40 portfolio have got to be struggling here. They're, they're not getting the kind of performance or, or safety, as it were, from the bonds that they would expect. 
Well, I was going to say, also, I just want to remind people that someone may be sitting there listening and going, well, you know what, I don't own bonds. And I want to say, yes, you do. You own it in your pension. You own it in the Canada pension as the major part. And whether it's a government one or a corporate one, whatever, you own bonds. So the decline in the value of your bonds is not a good thing. Yeah. And now, on the other side is that for savers, you know, that can step into the market. Now, we've had, call it 15 years, basically, of zero interest rates. But now, you know, with a, like a GIC, a three-month GIC is 5%. That's, that's kind of nice for savers again. Mike, there's another thing. We've talked a lot about currencies the past month or so. Um, the U.S. dollar is higher for 11 consecutive weeks. The, the bonds are on par for about the same sort of thing. But I did take a look at my weekly charts here, and the bond yields have gone up for 18 of the last 20 weeks. And I'm going to say, you know, I like to talk correlations. There's definitely a correlation here between the rising bond yields and the rising U.S. dollar and also a falling stock market. And uh, you know me, I, I add one more. I was so appalled when I heard people who should know better say the deficits are affordable without giving me any of their criteria, any of their you know, basis that they're making that and also what would derail it. Well, the other side is the amount of money the government needs to borrow is astronomical. That's the deficit side. And I think that's translating into these higher, you know, sort of 10-year and 20-year yields is the government's got to be able to attract buyers and they're not doing it with lower interest rates at that yes. end of the market. Well, certainly, again, on correlations, you look at why are bond prices falling, yields going up, while, say, inflation generally has been trending lower over the last six months. And, and I think a good part of why it's going up is what we call the term premium. But in plain language, it's there's an uncertainty or an ambiguity of what the path is going to look like for the next 10 years. And instead of, say, rolling your money over into two-year GICs, you got to be paid some extra, you know, to yeah. go out and put your money in the market for 10 years. And that term premium has gone up. And that's one of the things I think that's driving the yields higher. I think that's a real key. Hey, before I let you go, I want to quickly get to energy just for a sec, because I was looking at, uh, you know, I know you're going to monitor this on victoradare.ca on the blog, but man, here we go again, 95 bucks on WTI crude. Yeah. And you know, WTI has uh, narrowed the gap with Brent. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly a, a, a function of American pricing. I see production now in the U.S. is we're touching 13 million barrels a day, but the storage is, is pressuring the market right here. Um, it, $95 was the high this week. I think that puts us up about 40% from where we were at the end of June. So we've had a, a very sharp run up here in crude oil prices. Certainly, it looks as though speculators have really jumped into the market. Uh, as a sidebar to that, I see the share price of Exxon hit an all-time high this week. You remember a couple of years ago, they kicked Exxon out of the Dow Jones for you know bad behavior or whatever it was. <laughs> And Mike, one final gold, uh, which, you know, when you've got rising interest rates and a rising uh, U.S. dollar, that is almost always a toxic environment for gold. And, you know, gold has struggled here recently. I guess we're down about 11 percent from the all time highs we we hit back in May. Uh, I'm going to finish this with one thing, and that's sort of a pat ourselves on the back, but it's important that people take the lessons you've just done. How many times have I talked about Ernest Hemingway's quote, you know, how did you go bankrupt? He said slowly, and then all of a sudden, 
And I've felt all along that that's the kind of moves we get in the market. So, you know, there's energy sort of, as you say, dashing around there, even get under $70, et cetera, then presto, you know, when you get just literally three months later, you're 28% higher. Isn't that how we've seen uranium trade? Isn't that, you know, how we've seen bond yields, all of this stuff. And I think that's, uh, you know, just something that people have to be aware of. Things can sort of dally around for it. And all of a sudden, whether it's a down move or an up move, it just seems so uh, abrupt. And I just think, you know, I certainly adjusted my approach that way. That's why I take core positions. It's different for you because you're waiting for those trigger points, you know, to get in and out. But I just think it's an important lesson, the way these markets are trading. Well, it's it's nice if I catch them, but I'll tell you that the key to my trading is I, I, I'm really trying to prepare for when I'm wrong because I've seen yeah. that sort of thing happen so many times, and I don't want to be in there when the market moves fast against me. So I, I may have a, an idea and go, this isn't working, get out, take a small loss, and not get clobbered if, if you have a, a big, fast move like we've had, and there will be more. Yeah, and but that's the point there. You have entry points, you have exit points as a professional trader. That's good advice for everyone. Hey, Vic, I hope you have a terrific weekend. And, and, you know, of course, today, Saturday, Truth and Reconciliation Day, a chance to reflect for all of us there. But uh, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, of course, there's an obvious one. Saluting a member of the 14 Wafa SS Grenadier Division, which, by the way, the Nuremberg Trials condemned as a criminal organization for participating in the mass murder of Jews, and as the historical record adds, mass murder of Poles, Ukrainians, the list is a long one. Obviously, there is something very wrong. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about, and this is the key point here. Remember, 130,000 tax dollars were received by a raging anti-Semite, Laith Maouf, from the Heritage Department to conduct you can't make this stuff up, to conduct anti-racism workshops. Also, 602000 tax dollars to his wife's Community Media Advocacy Center received without oversight. Doesn't that sound familiar now? Without follow-up and without measure, measures and goals to determine what the taxpayers got for the money. But come on, to do anti-racism workshops? Now, the Department, Heritage Department admitted they didn't even do a cursory back down check, uh, background check which would have revealed statements like Jews are loudmouth bags of human feces and urging the open killing of Jews. Of course, the government promised to be more diligent next time. Well, we are at next time. Fast forward to this week, and you know the story. Ukrainian Nazi Jew killer received a standing ovation in Parliament, hailed as Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero. Yes, it was an egregious mistake. And what was it? What, three, four days later, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, resigned. Interesting, at that time, though, there wasn't a word on Prime Minister Trudeau's Twitter account. wasn't in Parliament for question period, Monday or Tuesday. But Wednesday, he did apologize on behalf of all Canadians. In quotes, this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and by extension to all Canadians. Well, yes, it was embarrassing. It is embarrassing, heightened by the fact that it took place on Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. But the embarrassment was the government's. Not the whole of Canada, not me. I had nothing to do with it. Actually, the public, Canadians, deserve an apology. The incompetence is far-reaching, though. Everyone in that building should have been thoroughly vetted given Ukraine is at war with Russia, which would have seemed to demand even tighter security, including vetting any guests. 
And I assume there are well-spelled-out security protocols in place when a visiting head of state, let alone one at war, is speaking in Parliament. I mean, come on, there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And that is certainly uh, deserving of a Goofy Award. But instead, you know what? My Goofy goes to Liberal House leader Karina Gould, who stood up in Parliament and was looking to get unanimous consent to strike Anthony Rhoda's comments about Yaroslav Hunka from the record. Strike the idea that we actually had a standing ovation. Strike from the record? Are you kidding? The remarks should be in big red letters to serve as a warning, a cautionary tale to government laziness and incompetence, and a reminder of the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis on the Jews. Wednesday, when the Prime Minister apologized, he stated, it is important that we learn from this. Are you kidding? But erasing the sorry incident from the official record? Well, that's not the way to do it. I don't know about you, but I'm already well aware of the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis, along with the need to vet strangers before they attend a parliamentary session featuring a world leader, someone at war with Russia. No, I'm not sure what lessons I'm supposed to learn other than my government can't even take care of the most fundamental things, like a security check on someone who's attending a parliamentary session where the leader of a, a nation at war is speaking. That's all the time we have this week, but I want to remind you, well, a couple of things. One is to say, look, another couple of, or actually more than a couple, we had several people say, what a great interview. I forwarded on last week for Sylvain Charlebois. I recommend Money Talks to my friends. I do appreciate that very much. Also a reminder, go to Mike's Money Talks uh, on Facebook, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, Money Talks tweets on Twitter. And join me at mikesmoneytalks.ca. And remember, as we announced earlier, save the date, February 2nd and 3rd, for the World Outlook Conference. My goodness, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about. So many good speakers, including Martin Armstrong, will join us again there. But so much to talk about this year and the next year. The track record's been exceptional. So I just say, put it down in your calendars, February 2nd and 3rd. Tickets are going to go on sale November 5th. In the meantime, have a terrific week.